I remember one year they built the temple without any like nails or screws. It was all um, like joint, like wood joint based and like um, kind of like tension based construction. And and you're just looking at the scale of this thing and you're just like mind blown, you know? Like, how do they do this? Like, how do you, how do you conceive of this? And then, you know, you have a piece of art like the temple where the structure itself, the design itself, isn't necessarily like where the art is per se. It's like the energy and the emotion that people put into it by like, adding all the remembrances of their, you know, fallen friends and family to where, like, going there becomes the art, right? It's like, it's like being there, experiencing all these people's emotions, like, watching over you and that energy that they've poured into it um, becomes, like, the emotional kind of experience of, of the art. Um, and it's just, it's rare to have that, like, experience in a traditional museum or, like, art show. I don't know. Oh, it's, yeah. it's pretty singular. Welcome to the Art and Life podcast with your host, Taylor Gallegos. Art exists all around us, in all directions, from all walks of life. We just need to know how to see it. The Art and Life podcast is an experiment in an audio format that focuses on the art and philosophy involved with different people and their life paths. This experiment is intended to inspire you in your creative pursuits, whatever they may be. Follow along as I interview movers and shakers from all walks of life. It's possible to make a life from your art, skill, craft, or vision. These interviews showcase that fact. Listen while you work. Listen while you create. Listen while you dream up the next big breakthrough. First off, I want to say thank you for listening. The people being interviewed and I are two parts of the podcast, but it wouldn't be complete without you, the listener. I very much appreciate your attention and your energy, and I hope you get as much out of this as I do. If you enjoy what you hear, you join me on this artistic journey in many ways. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review, share it around. You can join the conversation on the Art and Life Facebook group where you get notified of fresh episode drops. You can join my email list on my website at taylorgallegosart.com, the contact page. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at taylorgallegosart. And finally, you can support me on Patreon. So again, a deep and sincere thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Now, on to the good stuff.
Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Gallegos, and with me today is a very special guest. This gentleman I met uh, kind of in another world on another planet, the deep playa, if you will. We'll go into that later, I'm sure. Um, but this gentleman, he has a background in uh, geographic data science. And he spent time as an environmental consultant. His uh, degree was from Stanford in environmental system science. And he's he's gone through lots of iterations of uh, his professional world. And I thought he'd be awesome to have on the podcast to come talk to everybody. So, oh, Corey, per year, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. It's really good to be here yeah nice well yeah it's uh it's awesome i i've respected you since the moment i met you and i was like thinking about it like dude i need to get a cory on the podcast this will be a lot of fun so yeah no it's it's been uh awesome to think about being here and sorry that we couldn't make it work sooner but uh excited to be here now i feel <laughs> like this is this is the right time i don't know if i was ready back then and so i think uh have have learned a lot and probably uh will be a better participant this time <laughs> oh yeah well you know that's the cool thing about this podcast is that i don't really like push to make things happen at any one time because they always seem to come together um at the perfect time when it's when yeah. it's right so no worries at all um okay so we were talking a little bit um before we started recording about the flow and the arc of your career. Yeah. And, uh, I guess the first question that I have is like, um, what are you, what are you most interested in right now in terms of the professional world that you're in? What's, what's got you most lit up or is the most pressing thing? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, you know, there's, there's kind of two, two tracks here for me. I think, um, you know, on a day to day, you know, working at a startup like I do, where we're, you know, figuring out everything is we're sort of, you know, like the cliche, we're flying the plane as we're building it sort of, um, you know, it's, it's very, uh, my, my days are consumed by a lot of sort of like thinking about like, you know, how are we gonna get this next customer? How are we gonna build this next feature? How are we going to get this next deliverable out the door? Um, so that's sort of like, you know, my day-to-day. -day. Um, and so I'm thinking a lot about, you know, just like the basics of like organizational, like management and project management and all that kind of like, you know, potentially boring stuff, but if you're someone like me, it's kind of interesting to you. Um, and then, you know, I think in the bigger picture, sort of like long arc of my life and, and definitely like post-college life, I'm really thinking a lot about uh, climate and, and the earth and how, um, you know, humans have had an outsized impact on the various systems that uh, sort of power our earth and really enable humans and other animals and plants and organisms to thrive on this planet. So, you know, 
there's there's sort of like a, a day-to-day thing of you know how am I going to kind of keep uh, getting a paycheck and keep you know being a good coworker, and then you know translate that into how am I going to like show up for my family um, and how am I providing for my family? But then I think bigger picture, I'm really thinking about you know what's what's out there. Uh, and who's doing what to kind of bend bend the curve back towards um, what I would consider a sort of like stable uh, way of of living as like a species and a society on this planet. Um, you know, I think where I'm working right now in kind of like the geographic data products space. Um, you know, we're helping a lot of those organizations that are thinking about that stuff, um, helping them to make decisions, empowering them with data so that they can understand the impact of their decisions potentially, or sort of see where uh, resources are gonna be most impactfully directed to help kind of bring people out of poverty so that they're not having as much uh, impact you know, on the surrounding area and can kind of focus more on, you know, taking care of their families, taking care of themselves, um, looking at how climate change itself is going to impact various communities and sort of preparing those communities either through, you know, retrofitting their houses to be uh, more resilient towards like climate hazards like storm surge or flooding or wind um, or looking at how we can kind of incentivize future development to uh, not be in areas that are going to be impacted by things like sea level rise or increased storm activity. Um, but I think, you know, what really excites me these days uh, is thinking about all the companies that are coming out um, and organizations coming out that are really focused on, you know, helping everyone kind of get a sense and get a hold on their, you know, impact on the environment. You know, how much, how much carbon you're creating as an individual or as an organization or as a state or a country. Um, and then looking at you know, eventually ways to decrease that impact. So, you know, changing uh, what kind of car you drive or changing uh, how you drive or how you get to work, you know, changing what fuel you're using to power your heating or AC or things like that. So, you know, that's really like what excites me uh, right now is just sort of, the fact that, you know, when I graduated college, there were no companies uh, looking at this stuff. And now, you know, uh, 20 years later, which is crazy to think about, <laughs> uh, almost 20 years later, I guess, not quite 20 years, but almost 20 years later, um, you know, you're, you're seeing tons of companies coming out um, and whole industries around things like carbon accounting, carbon trading, carbon capture, um and and all of the renewable energy 
you know, all the solar, all the wind, all the hydrogen, all the geothermal, you've got, you know, massive uptake of electric vehicles uh, when, you know, 15 years ago, there were no electric vehicles. Um, so it's, it's all like exciting to me uh, in that regard, for sure. Yeah, totally. And <clears throat> I mean, data, what I've, I've heard about data is that it's like the new currency because it, it's so valuable in helping you like you, whatever your product is, your service is, if you're not doing it in the right place at the right time to the right situation, it's wasted. And so yeah, it's like data can just help you zero in so much on helping the people you want to help on solving the problem that you want to solve all the different things. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, you've, you've latched onto a good point there. It's, it's, I think, you know, in, in the early 2000s, you know, this was obviously like pre, pre cell phone, like, well, not cell phone, but pre smartphone, right? Um, like maybe maybe your cell phone in in two thousand one or two thousand two had had like a you know GPS in it maybe right, um, but you rarely used it because your battery would die in five <laughs> seconds if you turned it on, yep. um, and you know there wasn't Foursquare, there wasn't all these things Yelp. Um, and so you just, um, you really have this, like, in the last 10, 5, 10 years, really, this, like, you know, massive amount of data that's being created on where people are going. You know, you have Google Street View with pictures of every street in America and, like, most of the countries in the world. Um, you have, you know, Foursquare again with like POI data for like every business in in America, basically. Um, and you know, you can you can see like traffic and all these things. Um, you have, you know, people buying all this stuff on Amazon. Uh, so there's there's tons of data out there. And um yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not so much like a currency as it is like a kind of like mine in a way. It's like a big, you know, sort of like heap of stuff and you, you know, send data scientists basically in there to figure out like what you have and then like extract the value out of it. So, mm. you know, in the past, right, you had every not everybody but you had a lot of people with you know an iphone in their pocket or an android phone in their pocket and they're walking around a city and it took someone at google or somewhere like a little while to figure out like hey what if we like stitched all of those traces together and figured out like the time difference and then we have traffic right and so instead of having to rely on some camera placed you know, randomly um, at like major highway interchanges, yeah. you can know what the speed of a car is on, you know, some random side street in 
like, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin on a Saturday um, because you have enough people driving that street with a phone in their pocket um, and you can figure out how fast their car is going, right? So it's like stuff like that where you, at first glance, you just have like a big, you know, database full of geographic, like GPS tracks. And that's not obviously useful, but it takes sort of like a, you know, insightful mind to think like, oh, or creative mind, right? To think, oh, actually, like, what are people doing when they're making these tracks? And then like, what can we do with that, right? Oh, we can get traffic out. So that's always been like the interesting thing to me about the sort of post smartphone era um, is like you, you have all of these disparate chunks of like, you know, data traces of all kinds of behaviors and activities and stuff and really creative people are taking that data and turning it into like whole other things. Another example um, that I got to witness when I was working uh, at Mapbox was there's companies that are using like just pictures of places. So like pick of a spot like the Eiffel Tower, right? Or like a very like Times Square or, um, you know, the Lombard Street or something like that. A place where people are taking lots of pictures of it from lots of different angles. Um, and lots of different distances and times of day and all these things. And basically, instead of sending someone there to, you know, take a million dollar laser scan of a building face, right, or the Eiffel Tower, you can just take all of those pictures. And with the picture themselves and the metadata associated with that picture about, you know, where it was taken from, the angle, of the picture, the distance of the picture, the focal length, all that stuff, you can recreate a 3D model of that Eiffel Tower just from like a handful or a few hundred pictures, basically. Wow. And so, you know, you don't even have to pay anybody to go out there and map it or make a 3D model of it. You can just, you know, throw those million pictures into a computer program and it'll spit out like a point cloud 3D image of the Eiffel Tower, which is just like crazy to think about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, you know, cause it's like, like you look at like Google Street View or some of these like, you know, self-driving car companies. And it's like most of what they're doing when they're testing these cars is using these LIDAR scanners to like, take very detailed 3D imagery of a street, right? So you can see like the curb and like how big the sidewalk is and the exact geometry of the intersection and like where there are bumps on the road and like, you know, how close the light pole is to the corner and all this stuff, right? And like instead what you could do is just be like, oh, I know that people are taking pictures of, you know, most of these like, uh, you know, popular intersections like multiple times a day. Uh, and there's like a million pictures of, you know, Times Square. I don't need to send a car there. I can just create this point cloud image of it and I'm on my way, right? So I think that's that's sort of where like 
the creativity unlocks value in data is because you you're sort of finding these shortcuts right where you don't necessarily have to go out and specifically collect some data or it may be like really hard or impossible to collect that data um and so you can you know mine these other disparate data sets and sort of extract that ultimate data product from these data sets that don't seem like they would necessarily have that at first glance. Right. Um, another example that is really interesting to me these days is uh, with forecasting with weather and stuff. So, you know, a lot of weather forecasting is done with models, right? So you have a few kind of like, you know, weather stations that are you know, run by the government or universities. And those weather stations are used to basically like help to constrain a model of like how the atmosphere moves over North America, let's say, or moves across the Pacific Ocean. And so uh, in, you know, the last five years or so, a lot of those sensors that are used to create that data have become way cheaper and require a lot less power. Um, and so you're seeing lots of companies, especially in the maritime space, that are launching kind of autonomous or really not even like driven, but just sort of like, you know, uh, free floating weather stations essentially that are measuring very basic stuff, temperature, pressure, wave height, wind, right? Wind speed. And then from all of that, they can basically create enough data to constrain models where they can get even more accurate weather forecasting for places that are like in the middle of the ocean, right? And so why does that matter? Well, guess what goes through the middle of the ocean all of the stuff coming from or going to like China, right? So all the iPhones getting built in China get on a ship and that ship comes to America. And that ship along the way is relying on these forecasts where, you know, 20 years ago, those forecasts were like, okay, like there could be some storm. Like we see on the satellite image from a week ago that, you know, there's some clouds brewing and some cyclone activity, um, but like, you know, you're kind of going to be on your own for the most part. Um, and and now it's like, oh, we know with like pretty high accuracy exactly what's happening along the track of your cruise from China to the North American, you know, Long Port of Long Beach, basically, um, and you know that makes it much more likely that those ships will be able to avoid bad weather and then also makes it much more likely that they'll be able to make a more efficient trip right across the ocean and so that you know saves them fuel saves time ultimately saves everybody some money um and so everyone's happier both the earth and the companies because there's less emissions etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the real, it's like, there's, there's all these sensors now in the world. Um, 
and they're reading all this stuff and creating these mountains of data and these databases. And it's really like, um, it's, it's becoming its own sort of economy of finding these products, which are basically just like, you know, extractions and transformations of all these disparate data sets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so much more information about everything being recorded times like, yeah. And now like recording or like, uh, what is it? Like processing power is going through the roof and then like, uh, memory also is like memory storage is, yep. has like multiplied and multiplied. So there's like, it's just so much more information about every single thing going on right now yeah yeah which like yeah, you said man, I mean, it can really help yeah and it's like you think about even just like you know all these like fitness wearables right it's like you know you can like right now you could like put on an apple watch or whatever and like know if you're gonna have a heart attack you know Whereas like in, you know, like literally 15 years ago, like you were basically like going to have the heart attack before you knew you were having a heart attack. Right. Yeah. Um, or you'd have to go to the doctor and they'd be like, Oh, like, you know, after spending, you know, the day in the office and doing all these tests and, you know, spending $10,000 before insurance, like it seems like you should, you know, change your diet right but like now you can like literally eat something and like watch how it changes your heart rate or changes whatever you know yeah. um like you know i have a friend with type 1 diabetes and they have um a you know continuous glucose monitor right so it's like they can literally like eat something and see it change their blood sugar in real time yeah wow. um you know it's it's pretty crazy how just imagining like how enabling that is for someone to like live a normal life. Whereas like previous to the existence of this technology, you know, you're, you're sort of like flying blind and as such, like you really have to constrain yourself. Like you can't be too far away from your insulin. You can't be too far away from home because that's where, you know, you have the food that you can eat safely. Right. Um, whereas now it's like, you know, with your continuous glucose monitor, you're much more able to like go out and hang out with friends and go someplace where you don't know, you know, what's there because you can take your insulin with you. You can take your monitor with you. You can see things in real time, you know? Yeah. You can um, kind of be your own doctor. Yeah, exactly. You know, and like yeah. be watching yourself so that like, you can, you know, that you're not going overboard in one way or the other. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty fascinating and like, you know, just like the ability to monitor your sleep health um, and like see how different patterns and things that you do affect your sleep, you know, like, Oh, I drank last night. Um, or like I, you know, had an edible last night and like, how did that change my sleep pattern? You know? Yeah. Um, uh, or like, you know, my partner was snoring. How did that change my sleep pattern? Um or like I worked out, how did that change my sleep pattern? You know, I think it's, it's really like, it's, it's created this 
amazing world. And I mean, I think, you know, you look at the data sort of product side with like AI art, right? And it's like, how is the AI creating all this art? Well, it just has this, you know, endless, not endless, but just massive pile of pictures and drawings and all this stuff so that when you tell it, you know, I want to see Ronald McDonald fighting as King Arthur against, you know, a dragon made of hamburgers, like, it's like, all right, cool. <laughs> I know what all those things are, you know? Right. And, and it just, that's what it's going to do. Right. Um, and so it's just, it's like pretty fascinating to think about, you know, how this, like massive pile of data across all of these areas is like informing and enabling these like pretty revolutionary things um, that, you know, were sci-fi uh, when we were growing up in the eighties, you know, and yeah. then now they're reality. Like yeah. I just saw this crazy video where they did like a real time translation of um, language on I think it was on Facebook um, where they were just like having a conversation and the, you know, each speaker was basically having the other speaker's language immediately translated into their native language. So, you know, like, like not, it was like a universal translator in Star Trek or something, right? Yeah, well. Um, and so you're just like, like that's that's like the power of data, um, and and like you're saying, and compute power and the storage power. It's 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 going to be interesting to see, and so that's like what excites me is sort of like fusing that, um, like technology and and information and knowledge with these sort of focuses on how do we understand our impact on the environment? Um, and how do we kind of come up with creative solutions to making these transitions to uh, a lifestyle, both like personally and culturally, that's less impactfully on the environment and ideally like beneficial to the environment, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's where I see things like you know, real-time measurement of your carbon footprint or, you know, understanding the water quality or air quality um, or soil quality or, you know, whatever, what me, like, just sort of understanding your setting and your environment at like a measurable level changes your habits, right? And changes the decisions that you make. So it's like, you know, if you are consistently walking to work or walking your kid to school in an environment that's like heavily polluted with, you know, diesel exhaust or, you know, particulate matter, you're going to want to change that, right? Like you don't want to see the red thing on your air quality meter, you know, every day, all day, right? So you're going to either change the way you're walking, you're going to change, you know, the time of day that you walk. And ideally, you're going to change, like, the type of car or vehicle that's driving on the street so that those emissions aren't being created in the first place, right? Like, that's the most ideal scenario where you're not avoiding, you're just not being exposed to it in the first place. 
Um, yeah. And that's pretty cool because uh, I feel, you know, to make any sort of real change, the first thing that needs to happen is awareness. Exactly. And in the past, it seemed like, um, you know, like I've heard, we've all heard lots of stories of like neighborhoods or communities that were environmentally damaged from, let's say, like a power plant nearby or a tire factory or a whatever. And the people in the community oftentimes had no technology available to like be a sensor of air quality, water quality, anything like that. So awareness comes first. And that's a really cool thing about geographic data science is that like, yeah, it's able to, to do this at a much larger level that can help more people and be, and you know, like, yeah, if like the average human in all these little neighborhoods that, um, you know, are maybe in a dangerous zone, if they all had water quality and air quality um, data, like those are hard facts that you can report, you know, like exactly Flint, Michigan with the water and whatnot, you know, for how long did they yeah. go without like anybody knowing that anything was wrong? Yeah, they probably felt it. And didn't feel good and like cancer rates and yeah. blah, blah, blah. but like did they they didn't have like hard facts like these are the numbers that we're looking at where and like exactly. only big government organizations or maybe the companies themselves that were doing the damage like what is it like um i don't know there's like like the chemical company like dupont or somebody DuPont, yeah things like that like they yeah. th those scientists knew what was going on but exactly. they weren't going to tell everyone else and no one else had the ability to do that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's like the key, right. Is, is, you know, and you even look at something like more recent, like the wildfires in California, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you know, you go outside and it smells a little smoky, but you know, it wasn't until you had everyone with like a purple air sensor in their backyard measuring particulate matter pollution um, that you really understood like, whoa, this isn't just like smoky. This is like as or worse particulate matter pollution than like Beijing, which, you know, is kind of in everyone's psyche is like the dirtiest place on earth, right? Right. Uh, where it's like you can't see outside and like everyone, you know, hacks up black phlegm every day from being outside, right? And everyone has to wear a mask or else they, you know, breathe in all this smoke every day. And it's like, hey, guess what? Like, we're worse than Beijing right now. Like, um, and, you know, that's because there are these fires burning so hot and so over such a widespread area and for so long um that you know we're we're living in a scenario of, of worse air pollution than a place that everyone considers to be super polluted and you know i think um yeah i mean you look at situations like flint and then even just like you know, the growing awareness of how air quality affects things like uh, COVID, right? I mean, 
you've seen so many places uh, in Asia, especially where they've started using CO2 levels in a building or in a room as a proxy for how often the air is circulated and thus like how often um, the air is filtered and like how clean the air is basically. And so, you know, a lot of places in Japan, for instance, will like advertise that, you know, they have a CO2 level below X ppm, which means that like, you know, it's, it's the air is circulated so much that there's very low risk of you breathing, you know, someone else's dirty air, right? Wow. Um, but, you know, meanwhile, in the United States, like, no one is measuring this really at a widespread or sort of like regulatory level. Um, everyone just kind of is continuing to sort of uh, ignore it, right? Uh, at our peril, right? Because obviously, like, you know, COVID, get, catching COVID is never a good thing, right? Um, you might survive it, but, you know, there's always a chance that you're going to have some lingering uh, issues as a result of catching it. And so I think, you know, it's, you're totally right. It's, it's, it's like we are at a point now where we can really nail that awareness aspect and just sort of understand where we are and like what's happening around us. And, you know, there's already a ton of data and a ton of studies that show, you know, what happens to you when you are exposed to these pollutants or these, you know, low quality environments. Um, and so I think it, the awareness, basically widespread awareness forces the issue. It makes it unavoidable for, you know, the power brokers and decision makers, policy makers to ignore it, right? They have to pay attention. They have to do something. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the key because I think in the past, like you're saying, it was very easy to just sort of brush it under the rug, right? Uh, like, oh, you know, there's, there are some inc increased cancer rates here, but we don't know why it's happening. You know, it could be any number of things. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, people started, you know, measuring the water quality in Flint, right, that it became unavoidable. It became, you know, the focus, right? Um, and, and finally action was taken, you know, and now Flint, you know, has a cleaner water system as a result, right? Um, but, you know, that issue still exists in a lot of water systems in the country because, you know, like Flint, a lot of cities in the country were built with lead pipes because that was the way that you built plumbing in the past. Literally plumbing is a rooted Latin word for plumbum is the word for lead in Latin. Huh. So, um, so it's just like, yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's, it's interesting and like horrifying to think that like, like I remember as a kid in DC, like you didn't drink the tap water in DC unless you had filtered it uh, because 
everyone knew that there was tons of lead pipes in the city because it was so old, right? Um, and like probably same for New York, same for Philadelphia, same for all those old East Coast cities, Boston. Um, and then like even, you know, some older West Coast cities or Midwest cities, you know. Um, and then you look at like lead paint, leaded gas, um, all that stuff, uh, you know, it's it's a pretty fascinating thing. So I think, yeah, I think it's just like we're on the cusp now of, you know, an era where people are really able to understand the environment that surrounds them in a way that they weren't in the past. And, you know, it's it's enabling the standard sort of human reaction, which is, I don't want to like be unsafe, right? Like most humans have a self-preservation mindset. And so they want to, you know, move to or be in a situation that is safe. And they are gonna demand that from their leaders to enable or provide safety, right? And and I think that's sort of the like, hard part with climate is it's it's like getting easier to measure things like co2 levels and things like that um but there's not necessarily like an obvious safety issue right because things are happening so slowly in a way or in a way that like isn't necessarily like immediate or obvious. Um, so it's like, you know, there might be one more or like a slightly stronger hurricane each hurricane season, right? Or maybe it's like the snow is melting a little sooner, the flowers are blooming a little sooner, you know, the birds are coming a little sooner. Um, but there's nothing like, it's not like lead poisoning or something where it's like, oh, like, you know, after this point of exposure, like you're going to die, right? Or you're going to be so obviously impaired that, you know, you're never going to be the same. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of situation to be in for a lot of folks because I think you know, it's, it's, it's easy to be aware, but it's hard to make that connection to that sort of like self-preservation drive that then generates action, right? Yeah. And, and so I think that's why you're seeing all these like sort of, you know, outlandish like protest methods of, you know, pouring tomato soup on, on, you know, Renaissance paintings and, um, you know, spraying the Bank of England with fire extinguishers, et cetera, um, because, you know, it's sort of like folks are trying to create those sort of like negative consequences <laughs> or something mm -hmm. so that it sort of kicks people's awareness and self-preservation instincts into 
into action and and something gets done right yep um they're sort of at a loss of like how do we like wake these people up to the fact that like there's this impending doom you know and that we're running out of time to to bend the curve and avoid um really you know catastrophic consequences in the future right um yeah i don't know i also saw this interesting thing on that front it was like talking about um temperature and how you know because like temperature has been rising inexorably but in a way that's like not so intense so it's like it's it's inevitably it's like for sure hotter than it was you know 10 15 20 years ago but it's like it happened over a long enough time scale that it hasn't like it hasn't really like sunk in how much hotter it is, you know um and and then you look at like these heat waves like in china or even the one that we had in the states for a while um and all the droughts and everything and like you it's it's sort of just like uh it you know you would think it would be so much more impactful and like awareness building but because it's sort of happening in this like slow slow enough fashion it just kind of becomes like background noise like your your sort of baseline keeps moving along with the temperature increases so it like it never really feels that much hotter because your baseline keeps going up as well does that make sense yep yeah i thought that was interesting it's just like um you know just sort of like a peculiarity of like human perception basically and how it plays into these like long-term um dynamics around climate oh totally it's like the scale of it is like sort of too big and too slow for us to really engage with it properly yeah and like it's fast enough so we can sort of notice it but we can also it cannot like it's almost slow enough where we can where people can just like tell themselves that it's not really happening or it, or maybe you know like you know we used to talk about how it well it feels like it used to snow more you know but yeah maybe that was just my perception of it because i was younger i don't know you know like yeah it exactly. does a weird thing <laughs> so like without the data to back everything up like really we have no idea because we're just humans and everything's relative to us so yeah yep I know yeah. and i feel like i just saw something recently that was like there's some glacier somewhere or some piece of like chunk of snow that like never used to melt and now it's like melted like completely every year for like the past three years or something um and yeah it's just like it's it's interesting how these things sort of just like start to happen and reach a tipping point before you even like have picked up on the on the trend right 
Um, and now it's like, will it ever snow there again? Like, or is that ice just gone now? Um, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, it's concerning stuff for sure. It's, you know, cause I think like, that's, I guess why I'm like thinking about, you know, like data science being an important tool and and probably even things like artificial intelligence being important tools in helping humans like see these patterns and act on them before it becomes like a or like act on them before we would if we were sort of relying on our own kind of like perception um and like pattern recognition to to act on them yeah um, I think we're going to come back to this for part two, because this is fascinating and <laughs> I want to talk more about it. Um, All right. but we should jump into the questions here. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Great. You're ready for it. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay. So these are four questions that I ask everybody at the end of the um, part one for this season. And um, every season I change them a little bit. But question one is, what is your advice to aspiring creatives? And the word creative I'm using with a capital C as in like these are people that are creative in all different backgrounds and genres and fields. Creativity is like a way of thinking and problem solving and growth and um you know so there's aspiring creatives all over the place in all backgrounds and uh what's your advice to them yeah it's a good question man i think you know i would i would really look to Kind of uh, a great question, man. Um, I think my advice is really to explore both your mind and also the world as much as you can. You know, there's a lot of philosophy and art and technology uh that is proliferating all around the world and really disparate unique you know cultural views on any number of things and i think what we really need from our creator and like creative community these days is you know ways of communicating and ways of expressing that are acknowledging the wide breadth of kind of human existence. I think, you know, in the past, a lot of creative folks were limited by, you know, technology in terms of, you know, what they could see, where they could go, what they could hear, who they could talk to, 
And as a result, you know, created creativity was limited. But I think we live in a very unique moment in time where, you know, you can travel to the other side of the earth in less than a day, um, which is pretty crazy in the scheme of things. And I think uh, creative folks would do well to take advantage of that opportunity uh, while it lasts, because uh, it may not last forever. And, um, you know, just really avail themselves of the breadth of human existence that is out there and has always been there um, to really inform, you know, their worldview and, and sort of how they approach their creative passion. Yeah, totally. I very much agree. Yeah, I mean, the more, more you can see, experience, understand, um, you know, the more it, it all goes into everything that you do. And again, the, like the awareness piece, you're aware of more than you can be um, like considerate and conscious of more, and then you can act from there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Nice. Um, okay, cool. Now question two is uh, you've got a magic wand. Anything you want can happen. Uh, what do you want life to be like in five years from now? Oh man, that's a deep one. Um, I think I would hope in five years from now, if I could wave a magic wand, I would want folks to, I don't know, I think sort of building off my last answer is like, I want people to feel connected in a way that I don't know if people feel right now. I think our society, especially American society, but, you know, I'm sure lots of other societies, like, I wish that everyone could kind of feel like each other's emotions and have more empathy and more understanding of each other and the challenges that everybody's facing. Cause I think that would uh, really open up a lot of beautiful things in terms of compassion. And like I said, empathy and just really helping people to, um, you know, not take each other for granted, not take existence for granted and, and do what they could do to help each other kind of, you know, have everyone living uh, as comfortable and kind of like as uh, enjoyable a life as possible. Um, and I think right now people are too close-minded. I don't know how that works, but that's what I would hope for in, in the next five years is like, maybe we're not quite, there to like full connection but we're at least like there's some pool or forum or something that's like allowing people to really get a sense of how everyone else is living um and and engendering a lot of you know open thought and questioning of of assumptions and things like that yeah Totally. I think it goes back to um, the traveling element quite a bit. Yeah. Just just being in some, like, 
like in a new space and experiencing other people, culture, place, all the different things, um, it can really like create a connection that you like tangibly can feel. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like I went to, I got to go on this trip um, to, it was down the Danube river in Eastern Europe, mm. Vienna, yeah. the Black Sea and like getting to go through uh, Romania and spending time there, I, I mean, Romania is just next to Ukraine, but I yeah. feel like I, I kind of know what it's like there. Yeah. You know? And like, I can feel a connection with that place and those people. And uh, yeah, like once, once you create a connection like that, it's like, it's there. And then. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And if uh if everybody could be a little more connected with everybody else, uh that might be a really good thing. Maybe yeah, I mean I think what we need. <laughs> yeah, I think that was like the the thing that I loved about things like Facebook, etc., is like, you know, it enabled connection in a way that didn't really exist before. Yeah. Um and you know, that can be used for you know, nefarious things, but I think on the whole, like being able to see what's happening in Ukraine firsthand, as opposed to like having, you know, some foreign correspondent from the news tell you about it uh, is like really powerful in kind of breaking down barriers to understanding each other's humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have that like first-hand connection yeah for um, sure nice yeah all right um now question three have you yeah. got to see or experience your work affect a person or the world on a deep level if so hmm. you know i haven't yet i don't think i mean well i guess i'll take that back um I think my work at Acclima is just starting to really like um, bear fruit in that regard. Um, you know, I helped to kickstart a really revolutionary um, air quality measurement program in California initially, but I know now since then they've expanded their coverage, but even just within California, I think, um, you know, pools like, or technology like Acclima is building have really helped uh, the local community in Oakland, for instance, uh, shine a light on the air pollution caused by industry and the highway there, the the 80 and like the port and all the idling trucks and the diesel pollution and everything like that. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that awareness, like we've been talking about, will lead to action, will lead to, you know, changes in rules about truck idling, more enforcement of existing rules about truck idling and you know changes in how schools are built and operated with regards to air pollution and air quality so that you know kids aren't being exposed to as much um air pollution 
And I would imagine, I mean, like we were talking about with the environment and yeah, the way that the scale is so long-term that I would imagine that the effects of your work and all the companies you work with, like those effects would also be more long-term. So like, yeah, I think, I think it's for sure that way. Yeah. Um, you know, but my hope is to one day be involved like directly with like, you know, basically like helping to accelerate the, you know, the, the part of the carbon cycle that humans haven't been accelerating historically, which is the mineralization and sequestration of carbon. You know, we've been working diligently as a species to uh, mobilize tons of carbon back into the atmosphere um, after, you know, millions of years of plants largely uh, turning that carbon into leaves and bark and roots, and then uh, sinking that carbon into the bottom of the ocean or, you know, under, under the rocks on the earth. And I'm really excited to think about, you know, technology and companies coming up these days that are focused on, you know, the other half of that equation, which is turning that carbon in the atmosphere back into, you know, leaves and roots and, and shells and, and bearing it back into the bottom of the ocean and the earth so that we can uh, kind of, again, bend the curve back towards um, where the natural variability should be in terms of, you know, volcanoes and such releasing carbon and then plants and stuff uh sequestering it hell yeah hell yeah as <laughs> <laughs> uh i like it i mean that that's cool it makes me think about like how much creativity is going to be involved in like environmental progress in all the different ways oh for there's, sure there's I mean, so it's... many solutions that are needed in all these different areas and it's going to take a lot of like really good data understanding what's going on in the problem and then creative solutions to to figure things out exactly yeah that's that's so key um i think it's it's pure creativity because i think the science is well understood you know the chemist it's chemistry it's physics like there's there's no getting around it but i think the creativity is in like how you use technology, biology, physics, and chemistry together to turn, you know, to like speed up these, these processes that are naturally occurring, but we need them to happen faster and like at a bigger scale. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, all right. Sweet. Uh, okay, this is the last question of the section, and that is, drum roll, what is your definition of art? Oh, man. Um, that's a good one. I think for me, art is something that evokes uh, an emotion or is distilled from an emotion or an idea. Um, you know, my uncle uh, Martin is a pretty famous artist. He's a sculptor, 
mainly, but, you know, has been a painter and all kinds of things. And, um, you know, I got to go see his work at the Venice Biennale um, right before COVID in 2019. Nice. And um, he represented the United States. And um, a lot of his art, a lot of his pieces there kind of focused on, um, you know, slavery in the United States. And, you know, they were very, not simplistic, but just very like austere pieces, you know, they weren't like elaborate. It wasn't like, you know, mixed media videos and sound and stuff. It was, it was very like stark and, and it really, to me, like drew out these emotions and made me think about these periods in our history as a country and made me think about, you know, my ancestors um, kind of on both sides, you know, um, both like, you know, my ancestors who may have been the owners of slaves and my ancestors who were slaves. Um, and, you know, just like the history of, of our country. And I think that to me is art, you know, it's, it has to be about something and it has to kind of be challenging um, to, to you. It can't, you know, because I think, especially like at the Venice Biennale, it's, you know, it's, it's art everywhere, right? Ostensibly, but, you know, there's a lot of art there that's just kind of like there, you know? Um, and it's, it's not really like challenging or like evincing of, of emotional response. And to me, like that sort of fails my test at like what art is. I like it. I like it. it uh, it's like a, a pass fail. Um, yeah. And I like how you, you've got like a line that, that needs to be, that needs <laughs> to be crossed. Like <laughs> yeah. this is like, it's art or it's not. And I, I mean, I, I really like that, that it's like, it's like, can it's conveying of an emotion and an idea it's it's it makes you think and feel and um you know yeah I, I feel like I feel like what you're talking about is like really high like good art really like yeah. quality art is is that like that's what you want art that's what we all want art to be yeah that's great yeah and I mean it's like you know you might fall short you might like not quite get there. You might not quite evince the emotion that you were going for. But I think like as long as you set out with that as your goal, like, you know, that's that's art. Yeah. You're making but, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You know, because I yeah, I think like like you look at even like like the old, you know, classical painters, etc. of yore, right? And even there, it's like, you know, they may have just been painting like someone's face, right? Or like 
you know, a woman in a window. But what they are really doing was like, you know, or at least in my mind, what they're trying to do, right, is like sort of approach like God, right? Of like, you know, I am I am creating this image and like it is it is like an attempt to you know, do like one tenth of what God did when he created man, right? Um, or sort of like an attempt to convey the beauty that God did when he created like, you know, humans or created the earth, right? Um, you know, like capture that, that like, that awe of, of seeing the, you know, the Western United States, like, you know, where you, only way you could do that is if you went there or looked at that painting, right? And sort of just like coming to grips with like the the majesty of God's creation. So, you know, that's sort of what I'm I'm getting at is like it's got to be like about something more than just like, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's it's got to be, it's got to be like about something bigger than you, and bigger than you know, commercialism, right? Because it's like, it's easy to just like put something on paper or on canvas, but it's like much different to like try to affect someone's state of being by putting something on paper or canvas. Yeah. Yeah. Making big effects. That's, I, I like your perspective. Yeah. I would definitely go check out an <laughs> with you. <laughs> big stuff um yeah. yeah yeah all right well that's great um yeah let's talk more about art in part two here i mean all right we didn't even dive into is the art at burning man and that's where yeah we're man all right well, we'll, we'll, we'll get back we'll, to that we'll get we'll back, get back to, that. to that um all right now, what uh what i this is my, the part of the podcast where I thank my guests for coming on. So, Okori, I just want to say thank you for taking your time and your energy and sharing your expertise and your perspective oh, yeah. with us. Um, this has been a great convo, man. Yeah, man. And uh, we've had some really fun times together. And I've always, yeah. uh, I've always loved the conversations that we have because um, they've always been, they've always had depth and like a real... Um, I don't know, consciousness to them. I've always felt that from you. So uh, yeah, man, cheers to you. Thanks for, thanks for being on the podcast. All right. All right. Um, and then this is the part where if you wanted, if you wanted everyone to follow you, then they could, or if you have a suggestion for anything else that people could follow that's important or whatever, you can do that here. I guess I would just say, don't worry about following me, but you know, I would look in your communities and try to find folks who are bringing awareness to uh, environmental degradation and environmental improvement and do what you can to help them out and always support your local artists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, that's a good, good one there. Um, okay, cool. We're going to take a little break. Uh, we'll All right. for part two now Corey, 
Can you give the people one last bit of wisdom before we go? And this can be about anything. doesn't matter what. Oh, man. Um, on the spot. That's a great question. That's what we're going for. On the spot wisdom, I think I would just say uh, make sure to hydrate and make sure that you sleep uh, as much as you can um, at night so that you can uh, wake up rested and hydrated. <laughs> love it <laughs> perfect <laughs> uh, that's good advice people um, yeah all right. Sweet. Well, we'll be uh we'll be right back with part two all right part two is brought to you by steady state roasting in carlsbad california this place is my favorite coffee shop on the west coast and the coffee is the best they roast all their own coffees from around the world and have a roasting collective for the local coffee making community Check them out in the village of Carlsbad or order their beans online at steadystateroasting.com. And we are back. Oh, Corey, you there? Yes, I'm here. Perfect. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling good. Um, yeah, you know, just uh, looks like it might rain and that's a good sign. Um, we got tell, some. Tell the people where you are. I'm in Kailua Kona on the big island of Hawaii. Um, and I'm looking out my window right now at some bananas that are starting to blossom. And really stoked about that. Nice. You guys just moved there recently. We did just move here. Um, we have been living in California for a while. Um, but the aforementioned uh, wildfire smoke um and uh having a kid um kind of reoriented us to um living in california uh so we started looking elsewhere and then um i have had the blessing as a little kid to grow up in a place called micronesia which is even more in the middle of nowhere um, out in the Western Pacific um, and really loved that experience. I think it was uh, important for me as an African-American to grow up in a place where I was uh, brown like everybody else for the most part and people like my mom and other white people were uh the rarity um and that helped me both to not be in a situation where i was dealing with kind of like the racial dynamics of the united states and then also just sort of being in a place where i got to see a lot of people that looked like me um living their lives was helpful when I came back to the mainland, came back to the United States. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of the like, uh, I don't know, I want to say like, I just didn't have a lot of the, the baggage that comes with growing up uh, brown in the United States. And so having had a kid, it seemed like, you know, uh, moving to Hawaii would be awesome as a place where 
uh, similarly, like white people are in the minority um, and uh, he could grow up um, hopefully with less of the like racial uh, constructs that exist on the mainland um, and hopefully be able to understand himself outside of those constructs a bit more before he's thrust back in potentially as an adult. Right. Yeah. yeah especially in like uh, a person's formative years. Like if those were, yeah. if those were elements that were forming them, that would be a really big like challenge for your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think about like, you know, like kids like Tamir Rice and you know Trayvon Martin. Um, it's hard not to think about now that I have a kid of my own. Not to think about you know like how tenuous uh, your existence is as a African American man and person. Uh, a non-white person in in America. Um, so, you know, I'm just excited that he is out of that like dynamic um, and can kind of grow up, um, you know, sort of free of that like overarching uh, construct and, I'll be a little less fearful when he goes out into the world on a daily basis. And I think and hope that he'll be a little less fearful too. Yeah. Yeah. And it, um, so when did you go to DC? When did I go to DC? I was born in DC and then um, we came back when I was probably, I guess I was like eight seven or eight um and you know it wasn't really until we got back there that my dad like you know had the talk with me that every brown kid has with their parent about you know just sort of how you're going to be perceived and you know I went to was lucky to go to uh private school, actually Georgetown Day School, which was in the news with Katanji Brown Jackson's uh, Supreme Court confirmation. Um, got a kick out of that. But, um, you know, that school was a really unique school because it was the first integrated school, even before Brown versus the Board of Education in, I think maybe even in America, but certainly in Washington, DC. Um, and so, uh, you know, the history of that school was very unique and very like uh, racially progressive. Um, but by the time I got there, um, you know, there wasn't really a huge uh, African-American student body population there. Um, and, you know, obviously like, this was like post Rodney King, et cetera. So, you know, there was a lot of like 
awareness of how black people were treated by the police and um you know just society in general in like the post post reagan america um and so yeah definitely just like had that talk with my dad uh when we got to dc and um you know was always aware like when i was hanging out with my friends especially in high school uh you know at parties and stuff that like you know if we were drinking or whatever party um and the cops came like i was going to be the one that got in trouble and definitely had classmates who were african-american you know go to jail where the other kids at the party didn't even get like a ticket um so you know i think it's always been like front and center for me just like that that fact and i left at the chance with sylvan you know i was like oh shit yeah like i've always wanted to live in hawaii and i think it's going to be great for him to live out here and we're blessed to have jobs that support that and you know let's take advantage of it while we can yeah totally there's like there's so many positives just in living in hawaii that's awesome hawaii is beautiful and great and all the things and then yeah all the stuff that you're talking about is it's like such a powerful effect that you know like so many of us <clears throat> i mean white cisgender male in the united states of america and i don't have i have the privilege of not feeling so many of these situations and i think there's a lot of yeah. white people in the world that like you know they just like they don't have to consider it so then they don't and they're not aware that like there's actually a completely different reality that people have to deal with on a daily basis um, yeah yeah and it's it's like it's very unfortunate that that's the case yeah i don't know yeah no i i i really feel you on that one it's 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 interesting because i think you know that that to me was like the biggest awareness i had as an adult like especially once i started doing like some therapy um was you because even as an african-american person it's like I think a lot of people don't realize the like mental load that's placed on pretty much every African-American person um, just like on their day-to-day -day existence. You know, you're constantly having to sort of read the situation, make sure that you're not being, you know, threatening um make sure that you're not like carrying anything illegal or doing anything illegal or even you know being perceived as doing anything illegal um and you know uh just like constantly reading the room and like checking to see if there's any other black people you know um 
and it's just like, you know, I think, I think back to being in Micronesia and it's just like, obviously as a kid, so it's like, you're doing less of that, but even still, like, I just never, I didn't have that like weight on me, you know? Um, and now that I'm out here, you know, I feel like an outsider still in a lot of ways, but I feel like an outsider because I am like, you know, I'm not from here and there's like very sensitive dynamics around that here, but, um, I don't feel as like, like sort of singled out or like watched kind of in the way that I did even in some place as like diverse as Oakland, right? Um, I just kind of feel like I'm just one of the other milieu of people out here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I would like, as humans, we're like, there's such a uh, complexity to our social dynamics. And yeah, when, and there's so much like, evolutionarily connected to like our connection with the group and like you know like fear like the other feeling like like fear of being the other the feeling of being the other like uh, there's just so much to it and like I I mean I I can only well I guess I've been in a couple of situations where I was in a minority in this situation but yeah like I mean, you're talking about like sort of this like resting level of stress on you yeah. at all times, I would think. Yep. And like what that yeah, would do to what that would do to you would just be like really challenging. And then like the effect over time would it, it would just be exhausting and and hard. Yeah, it is it is exhausting for sure. Um and I mean, you know you see it like in, in life expectancy and like healthcare, you know, health outcomes for a lot of minorities in the United States, especially it's like, you know, that stress like adds up, you know, it's just like a high baseline stress. It, you know, affects your heart, affects everything. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of like the, the reason we're out here um and it's been good so far um so you know uh nice to sort of be away from the craziness especially of like california but then you know also just sort of like everything else like you know not as worried about like shootings out here or um, you know, petty crime, you know, there's still crime, but it just seems like nothing compared to, um, like the day-to-day -day in Oakland. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been good so far. Plus, um, you know, it doesn't hurt to have like all these awesome tropical fruits growing in our yard. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it's it's also been a dream of mine to like get into more like farming 
Um, so like maybe maybe take a shot at that while I'm out here. Oh yeah. From what I hear, yeah. you basically it's like just fantastic growing. You like stick things in the ground and they go nuts. Yeah, more or less, but you know, there's some stuff that still needs like the cold snap. Like I think strawberries are hard to do out here mm. at like lower elevations um, where it doesn't get cold enough. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, man. Um, well, I got a question. How for are you? you? All right, hit me. Am I going to see you out at Burning Man again? Man, I don't know. Did you go last year? I haven't gone for this year, I guess. No, I haven't gone since 2016. And okay. I'm thinking like at some point, I've got a, this vision of a camp, putting a camp together and basically modeling it mm-hmm. off of your camp. Off the pouch. Yeah. It was incredible. I got to go with uh, Tyrone brought me and that was when I got to yeah. meet you and that was in t- 2012. And um, I want to do one called the gallery. I'm not going to go into okay. it. But uh, but yeah, so I've got this idea and I've got some people, a bunch of people who are interested, but every year I'm just like, man, it's, it's a ton of work. Yeah. It's so much work, but it's so awesome. (laughs) It is. It is. um, I mean, I saw some pics from this year. Um, we had like a small pouch presence. We, in the last pre COVID year, um, 2019 the pouch kind of fused with this other camp called pizza love ah nice where we were doing uh they do like they bring a bunch of pizza dough and like ovens and uh make pizzas nice and so we um kind of combined forces and infrastructure and that was pretty awesome and then we did it again this year um and so Vaughn and I were going to go. We were all set to go. But then, um, you know, we, uh, I think basically like between selling our house and moving and then eventually like getting our house in Hawaii, it just became like, like you said, it was just like, it was going to be too much work to do the work that we needed to do to go to Burning Man, like prepared yep. and, and also like take care of the rest of our lives. Yeah. And so we had to make the unfortunate call to stop out. Um, but I think, you know, we want to go back um, hopefully next year, hopefully like things are a little less crazy with COVID um and then obviously like less crazy in our lives and we can make it happen but yeah man i mean i think like back to our conversation about art and like what is art and it's like you know having gone to like the venice biennale and like seeing sort of like one of the like the pinnacles of the art world right um it was fascinating to see kind of how like small fry some of that art was when you compare it to like what what comes to burning man 
Um, and I was, it was pretty shocking because I was just like, man, like, you know, these artists ostensibly have like at least two years, if not longer to be like working on this stuff. And, you know, a lot of it's kind of just like, oh, that's cool. Like, I can understand how that's important to you or like, <laughs> you know, um, like, you know, there, that seems like challenging art, like definitely makes you think, um, like there's this cool, um, art installation from, uh, Kiribati, which is one of those island nations that's going to be like underwater in 30 years. And, um, they had this whole like sea level rise experiment or experience basically where like you kind of like were in this room and you were sort of experiencing like sea level rise basically over like an accelerated time scale. Um, so that was cool. But I think like with Burning Man, it's just like the scale and like the creativity. Um, it's like it almost transcends like at least for me like the definition of art or it's like it's like engendering an emotional response of just like pure like ecstatic sort of joy I don't know like I think a lot about one year I went this may have been the year you were there I can't remember but there was like this art piece that was like a wooden wave and it was like made out of like a basketball court like flooring basically like laminate kind of you know strip flooring and it was curled up into this wave and you could basically like ride your bike onto this wave and it was very simple like totally you know nondescript but it was just like that moment of like riding your bike up on it and like hearing, you know, your wheels going over the wood flooring surface and like, you know, stressing all the joists underneath and hearing the like, you know, the wood and, and then like, you know, catching the top of the wave and coasting back down. Um, it was just like, such pure joy you know and like uh and just like happiness um and it just was like like a like a boost you know it was like i don't know it's hard to describe but i think a lot about like that i think a lot about some of the other artwork where you're just like the scale of it and like the complexity of it like I remember one year they built the temple without any like nails or screws. It was all um, like joint, like wood joint based and like um, kind of like tension based construction. And, and you're just looking at the scale of this thing and you're just like mind blown, you know, like how did they do this? Like, how do you, how do you conceive of this? And then, you know, you have a piece of art like the temple where the structure itself, the design itself, isn't necessarily like where the art is per se. It's like 
the energy and the emotion that people put into it by like adding all the remembrances of their, you know, fallen friends and family to where like going there becomes the art, right? It's like, it's like being there experiencing all these people's emotions, like watching over you and that energy that they've poured into it um, becomes like the emotional kind of experience of, of the art. Um, and it's just, it's rare to have that like experience in a traditional museum or like art show. I don't know. Oh, it's, yeah. it's pretty singular. And it's interesting because I feel like people, you know, are so focused on like, oh, it's like you wear, you wear clothes and Paris Hilton's there and, you know, Diplo's there and it's like DJs and it's house music and robot heart. And it's like, that's all cool and like fun, I guess. But like at the end of the day, like, I think what really keeps me going is like what cool art is going to be there, you know, like what's, what's, what am I going to climb in or, you know, how am I going to like get this amazing view or see this crazy light show or, you know, watch the sunset over something or like, you know, how is that going to look when it's on fire at the end of the week or, you know, like, going into some you know like or even just like the ephemeral art of like someone like setting up like a diner out in deep playa and you're like going and getting like you know a cup of coffee and a grilled cheese on like a new york city diner but it's in the middle of the desert right <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> there's just like such a broad <laughs> and like whimsical and sort of like ephemeral aspect to it all that i think um is like hard it's like impossible to reproduce in other venues and like kind of containers i don't know yeah um because it's like it's like you know if if burning man like banned the sound camps and made it you know so that there was no like robot heart no opulent temple whatever i would i would still go because you know, that art, man, it's like, that's it for me. Like, you know, I can play whatever music I want to listen to on my boombox, but, you know, or I can see all those DJs that, you know, Coachella or what have you, but, you know, that's the only place that you're going to see, you know, a 30 foot tall, like, you know, lattice sculpture of a woman or that tree of Tenere they did that one year where it was like, every individual leaf had like individually addressable LEDs and they were making like all of these amazing, beautiful patterns and the leaves. And, you know, it's just like, it's like, you can't, you can't find that anywhere else, you know? No, no, it's such an amazing experience in that way. It's like, and all the art, all the art pieces are done by individuals. And that's, I think that's yeah. probably the biggest difference between like, that festival burning man and like coachella or lightning in a bottle or any other you know lollapalooza all the things all of those other ones are 
like you pay your ticket and then there's this like entertainment thing that is created for you by the venue by by bands by dj yeah. by the the venue organization burning man is all yeah or it's like or it's like oh we got like this dope thing from burning man they're gonna bring it to lightning in a bottle right 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 <laughs> Totally. Like, totally. And like, because like, oh, Burning yeah, Man's open source. Opaya five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to see it first? Go there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, like, it's open source and it's from, it's, it's for the people by the people. And in yeah. that way, you get so much like incredible art. And then it was like for me, going that first year was it took my little view. <laughs> I, I went to art school, you know, I was, yeah. I was, I studied abroad in Italy. I was like versed with the Western art, you know, culture and scene. And this, yeah. is, went to a bunch of museums and shit. And uh, I had an, my idea of what art was with a capital A. And I went to Burning Man and my little art with a capital A had a bunch of dynamite sticks underneath it and beat yeah. <laughs> the fuck up. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like, that that week just completely turned my it like took my world and spun it and then i was like oh my gosh art can be so much more than what i thought it was kind of like what you're saying about the venice biennale yeah it's like the world thinks of art as one way but like burning man's like 20 years in the future uh yeah or, or on another dimension really yeah yeah, because it's it's I think it's like it's so rare in those other settings that you get art that's designed to be interacted with. Mm -hmm. You know, like you go to the Louvre, right? And it's like you stand 15 feet away from the Mona Lisa and you're supposed to like have some experience, right? Um, but like the the beauty and the art of the Mona Lisa is in like the paint strokes, right? It's yeah. like being able to get up there like <laughs> one inch from the painting and look at how, you know, homeboy created the light, right? Mm -hmm. And, and what colors he used and how he mixed the paint and how his strokes created the depth and the shadow you know um and you just don't get to experience it like that you don't get to experience it how it's meant to be experienced and yeah. i think um in the same way you know like that's that's like the big difference for me with burning man is like it's like beautiful at glance but then you actually get to get up in there and like look at the joints like how did they put this together you know like how is this working like i want to go over to like the computer where they're programming the leds and they're going to be like hey check this out like you want to add something to this you want to like make a new pattern like here's how you do it you know um or like you want to climb on this or like sleep in this or like see how you know this one part was designed to like perfectly cradle your foot you know like and like there's an obvious handhold there and you know like oh like look if you look in there it's like oh wow there's like a whole world in here you know <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 like it's art that's designed to be experienced, to be interacted with, um, to be touched, to be smelled, to be like tasted, um, you know, as well as seen. And I feel like too much of like art with a capital A, like you called it, is is only designed to be seen, you know. Yeah, and it's um I think uh another thing like it's it's designed to be like felt and experienced yeah. on a deep level. And a lot of yeah. it like the the concept is paramount and primary. Yeah. And then the the polishedness, the beauty of it, the fin like that's a little bit less important with a lot of these pieces. Like there was one that uh that really stood out to me that i saw that was a like six foot tall ball made out of toothbrushes that had been thrown away and it was a statement about plastic and our throwaway culture and uh you know it was kind of weird and like it had a cool form to it but it was kind of like strange and weird and like you but like holy shit that pierced my experience of that night and you know i remember it six years later yeah as like one yeah. of the main things like and i've acted differently with my choices and decision making and like you know yeah what products to buy and how to think in terms of an environmental thing like like the it's cool because it's like in some ways some of some of it would be considered kind of like high art some would be like tech art some would be yeah some of some of it would be like lowbrow art of because it's like it's it it wouldn't sit right in a gallery but burning man's this giant gallery of whatever the fuck you want and like do whatever however just make it just be awesome like just just push it as far as you can and with that framework like so much amazing stuff can happen yeah man yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. So yeah, I mean, I think I'm definitely going back, whether it's next year or the year after. But I don't, I don't see myself staying away from that place uh, forever. And certainly, like you know, um, as long as I'm blessed with like my parents being healthy and able to travel, and Vaughn's parents being healthy and able to travel, like we'll have someone to watch Sylvan while we, while we go explore the playa. And then who knows, maybe uh, we'll take him to Kidsville <laughs> when he's old enough. There we go. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, man, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a place like no other. Um, it's an experience like no other. And like you said, it's like, it's, it's a great way to like, not only, experience but also like reflect and and like think about yourself and like how you're showing up in the world and you know for your family and for your friends um yeah i'll I'll be back for sure nice yeah i'm thinking i'm thinking 2024 is my year 2024 yeah yeah that's what what i'm aiming at let me know keep me in the loop on your ideas and plans because you know if worst case like you know i think we have plenty of infra and like good standing at the pouch so we could always uh 
help you glom on or you know help you get out there sweet sweet let's do it all right well that sounds like a plan uh i'll keep you in the yeah and um yeah man this is this is great to have you on the show i'm really glad that this worked out yeah man um this is a great convo and thanks for uh reminding me why i'm in this uh in this industry and where i am in the first place and um hopefully uh helps me keep keep going and keep my uh north star in focus (laughs) i love that that's really cool that you say that because it feels like the podcast has it's it's evolved into this format where there's like part one and part two and there's the question yeah and the whole thing and like um the format almost it reminds me of almost like a a little machine that you yeah. put, put the guest into in one end and then you know if you if you open the machine you watch them go through the different parts and processes of the machine and then they come out the other side and the person that come out comes out the other side isn't the same person as the one that went in because the questions are very directed at certain times yeah they they like get at the why or the how you know like what's important about the things and it's been cool because a lot of the guests on that have been on the podcast i've seen them you know rejuvenated or like get jazzed and then do amazing things and like um getting all kinds of cool success stories of people who've been on the podcast and oh yeah dude sweet (laughs) oh yeah all right man well thanks for thanks for taking the time with me and uh this has been this has been an honor yeah man it has all right well uh hang out yeah thank you um so hang out for a second i'm gonna stop the recording and then we'll uh okay we'll say goodbye later everybody later So that, my friends, was oh Corey per year. He's awesome. That was a great conversation. Uh, yeah, it's really fun to talk to people who've been to Burning Man about Burning Man and the art of it, and uh, and it's really cool hearing a person who's well versed in you know the fine art world um, through his uncle and through his life experience, and then also through the Burning Man lens. Um, because it's just so epic. If you, I, I recommend everybody go at some point in their lifetime because it's amazing. And if you're a creative artist of any kind, I recommend you do it sooner rather than later because it will influence you in awesome ways. I promise you. Um, yeah, and that was also really cool hearing him speak about you know all the environmental stuff and it's just. It was really cool, you know, to hear how data can actually be like really helping us in a lot of ways. And like, uh, what an interesting perspective and like how it's like creativity is happening in like all these levels that we don't really even realize um, by people, lots and lots of different people at lots of different levels, which is cool. It feels, um, I don't know, it feels like kind of a positive spin on like the environmental situation that we're all in that like there is a lot of really good stuff going on by a lot of 
really good people trying to do good things. So there's hope, my friends, I think. Yep, pretty sure. Feels like it. Um, and yeah, also when we got off uh, the call, I I just thanked O'Corey for sharing his perspective on um, you know the racial experiences that he's had in his life and what that's like because like I said like you know I've never had to go through those challenges and experience those things and a lot of people haven't and but just because I haven't or other people haven't it very much does not mean that it doesn't happen all the time that it's not real for lots and lots of people and um you know in order to solve problems we need to have awareness that there are problems and um yeah, there are. So we need to work together to figure this shit out, everybody. Um, yeah, that's all I got, I think. Uh, I hope that you are doing awesome things, that you're doing creative work, and yeah, that you're going after making an effect, making a big impact. What What is gonna impact the world, other people? Um, you know, things on a large scale. These are good questions to ask when we're creating and making our work in whatever field or form it is. So take that and run with it. Sounds good? All right, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>